in a world where adults play pretend around a table. Where two grown men share their years of expertise. A world of game mastering. A world of playing. One show drops knowledge bombs into your brain. Follow our heroes on their trip towards RPG perfection. This is episode 373. Welcome to Gaming MBS, Tabletop RPG Podcast. I am Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome to the show, folks. Hell of a good intro. Who did that one, Craig? That's Craig Shimmon of Third Floor Wars fame. That was awesome. I also want to thank Michael from last week. I think I thanked him, but then I realized after editing, like I've been pronouncing his handle wrong all this time. Yeah, we've always said Akadokan. I did, yeah. It's Yeah, that's how we both said it. Yes. And it is. Edokin? Uh, I'll have to go back and listen to it again. I was, I was thinking about that actually as you were playing this one. I'm like, I need to go back and listen to that one again because he pronounces it. And I you and I have been saying it wrong for God knows how long. And uh, speaking of saying things wrong, um, Mr. Carpio, friend of the show, supporter, really cool guy. He um, recently, I know you don't follow him um, <clears throat> on Facebook much, but he just had surgery not that long ago. So uh, James has been. We we uh we, we foolishly mispronounced his name once and uh Caprio or Carpio, not Caprio, and we kind of went back and forth and had a little bit of fun with it. And James has been awesome. Um and anyhow, if you get a chance to meet James at any gaming convention or whatnot, wonderful person, a lot of fun, super gentleman. Anyway, um hopefully you hear this, James, but from Sean and me to you, speedy recovery, buddy, and I hope to see you at the next convention. So glad things went well. From the sounds of it on your Facebook post. So uh awesome that you're coming out of it there. So anyway, I want to make sure I drop that. I just he's talked to him dude. on Twitter. I didn't even realize. I mean, yep. I didn't realize. So I have to say he, he made to it. Him. He's made it really, really he's made it really quiet where he he said on Facebook, like, I'm kind of breaking it where he said, Look, I'm kind of a private guy about this. I didn't want to make a big deal. But some people have asked, so here you go, I'm okay. And I just wanted to I just wanted to say out loud here that I'm glad you're okay. I know Sean is too, so it's good to Good to have you back in action, buddy. Yeah, it was all right. It was Echo. No, it's not Echo Dokin. It's, it no, was Echo 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 Dok Echo something. We're have to check it out. I don't remember, Michael. Damn it! <laughs> can't. We I suck. Can't, I can't pronounce words and names and stuff. I was having a all hard right, time so- Saturday, just like coming up with proper <laughs> nouns. It was ridiculous. Anyways, I had that all day today at work. People were asking me stuff, and I was just stumble, fumbling my way through every meeting. I was just, that was a wreck. Anyway, let's see here. BS account, let's talk about gaming crap. So, event registration on January 10th at noon, Central Standard Time. Is that true, Sean? Well, so, that, yeah, that's that's kind of the deal as it stands right now. I We've rallied a few contacts, and one was like, hey, why do you close event reg? And I did think about that early on because i'm like it's virtual i don't have to shut down tables and rearrange stuff but you know there were a couple uh sensible people on our discord that were like no close it down and you get 
then you could see all the vents. They're done. People have a sense of not urgency, but, oh, I got to get my event in by this date. And if you don't, then they just prolong it. So I'm like, okay. Well, so as it stands there, right now, yeah, it's event submission is done. And event registration and event sign-up will start the 10th. On the 10th. Okay. At noon central time, U.S. So this is the first year Sean is attempting to do such a thing. Um, so for everybody who's signing up to do this and trying to and helping us out through all this stuff, helping us, i.e. Sean, because Sean's doing all the legwork here. Thank you very much. That's awesome. And I um, I got to say, Sean, I agree with the uh, with the approach of, like, at, let's get through this year. Like, we stop it like you did. And then event registration, move on. And then we'll see what happens, right? Um, the other thing that that does is and once – if you showed up on like January 11th and submitted something and people didn't see it, didn't know it and so forth until the convention becomes a more regular thing where people understand how it operates, how it, how the flow is, you you run into a situation where somebody sits down at the virtual table and they have crickets and no players, right? Well, only one person happened to find it. Everybody else is like, oh, if I knew Sean was going to run for Lands, oh, fuck, I'm already booked up. Then they got to decide, do I bail on these other guys and, and gals and folks and run over to Sean? Do I, uh, you know, so I like the idea. And I think we, I, I think that was a good call on your part, man. So thanks, Brett. Like so right, we have. It's the right uh, move to make, Sean. We have close to 50 events. I I guess if you count the paint, the, the painting room all weekend and stuff, about 50 events. Um we need some probably could probably use some players, so we'll put the word out to uh, Game Hole Con Discord, and a few people from Twitter have come over, and even some last minute event submissions um, came through. So, yeah, it's gonna be a grand old time. Goblin's henchman, he showed up, he's gonna do his his flower hex, which is something I have in die roll, by the way. So, oh, it's a bunch of good cool. games, like I listed. <laughs> Almost every different type of game that we're running, and it's from Five E all over the board. Powered well, by I'm the going, Apocalypse. I'm it's, going myself. I've got Osric First Edition, AD and D, and Five E are the two games I'm running. And I saw there's PBTA stuff. There's all sorts of stuff out there. Yeah, I started looking through the list that you posted. Like, holy shit, that's some cool stuff. <laughs> very, very cool. Very, very cool. A Kodakin. That's what he said. A Kodakin. Thank you. Kodakin. Son of a. There we go. All right. I'll tell you what. Let's get into Random Encounter. Random Encounter already? Yeah, let's do okay, it. Let's see if John found the soundboard. You got the soundboard? I do. It's right here. I kind of want to tell you it's echoing horribly. Let's hit the button, but Shut I won't up, do that to you. I'm not going to do it to you. I'm not going to do it. Random <laughs> Encounter, a segment of the show where we field emails, voicemails, comments from social media. Got so one. what do we got, man? We've got one from... The old school DM. Awesome. All right, voicemail. Here we go. Oh, voicemail. Okay, well, voicemail. Let me get ready. Hey, Sean and Brett. This is old school DM calling in about episode 372, Extended Random Encounter, where D&D has success with setback. Uh, I posted several things to the forums. I'm not going to go into all the details here, but specifically in response to the request for examples. And there are lots of examples. Probably most importantly, the DMG has seven examples in their section about how to resolve attribute checks. In the adventures, I found over 50 references 
to modified results or non-binary results for checks in about a quarter of the online books I have. I'm betting there's around 100, order 100 examples. So there are lots of examples. I want to start with that. Second, I wanted to kind of lean into something about Sean saying, well, that makes it all loosey-goosey, this room, this rule. And he's right. It does make what happens on a skill check loosey-goosey. My contention is for D&D, it has always been that way. Um, it's never been only about pass-fail. Um, there's always been some ability of the dungeon master to do a thing, but now it's in five each rules, but I don't want to focus on the rules. I think what was maybe Sean was trying to get at, and you can confirm for me, is that this puts all that loosey-goosiness generally in the hands of the game master, whereas some of the other rule systems that Sean seems to like, the game imposes on the game master that they must have a possible extra success or possible uh, success with consequence. That those are parts of the rules, and that's something he likes in a game. I, as a DM, don't think I would like that every role I would have to come up with four or five different cases of what would happen based on the context for the role. It's just too much cognitive overhead for me, I think. I've not played one of those games, so I'm willing to reserve judgment. But I was wondering if that was what you were getting at, Sean. Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. This has been fun digging into this stuff. If you are interested, go to our forums. Randy does have a lot of really solid examples that he pulled out. And uh, the examples question was Brett's, where I said, huh, do they have enough examples? And Randy beat me to my DMG. Like, okay, they do have some in there. And I was, my contention was that I'm like, I hope to God that they have the examples in the DMG, the core books, because that's where, um, when you're reading the rules, that's where it should kind of be out there. And I think also, before we get to the, his question post to you, Sean, I think the other thing that was interesting is that I was thinking at first, after I read Randy's post, I'm like, huh, you know, if it's an either or, should they have examples of both options for every skill check in every written adventure? But I think Randy's right. Holy shit, that's a lot. For a game that could be run one way or the other, flooding every published adventure with, you know, a dex check. Now, remember, here's five examples of if you're using this part of the or, right? <laughs> if you're using this type of re resolution, here's examples. If you're using this type, it's pass-fail. And do that all the time everywhere. Yeah, and I, I think there is something, <coughs> excuse me, to be said for, and this is where some of the skill comes in. I think Randy is right that it's been loose. It is loosey-goosey, and I think that's kind of a, a nature of that beast. And by having it be an either-or um, means you could also do both. You can run at any given point. You could say this, you fail the climb, you fail the climb, you halfway climb, or wh whatever, right? Depending on what the drama of the situation is, that requires um, a little more skill, perhaps in the dungeon master and or even the players if they're if they're throwing out ideas or if you're sourcing the table in any way but there is there's a bit more cognitive load in that and we did talk about that last time a little bit too sean where we said certain games like um fancy flight star wars where it can take time you know the uh, combat can be faster in one versus another even because that's pass fail in D, D versus you know hit miss versus a more descriptive text and so forth but Anyway, so what do you, uh, what's your response there to Randy's question to you? 
So I don't think it is specifically um, – I don't think it's a preference of it where it derives from, the source. I don't know in, in who dictates the setback or the whatever the case is. So what Randy's talking about is – you know, I'm playing Forbidden Lands. Forbidden Lands, all the guys, the players roll the dice. I don't roll anything. And the target number is, you know, sixes on a, on a D6. Savage Worlds, eh, not really. I guess, yeah, kind of similar because there's, but there might be a tweak on difficulty. Regardless, it's not, in, in Star Wars, it's by the book. Um, is if it's a negative result in some capacity. So, for example, say the player succeeds, but there is a setback. The, the, what the player wanted to do kind of is achieved. And then the setback would be dictated by the game master. Mm. If it was where they failed, they wouldn't overcome the objective that they're trying to do. And it's with an advantage then the players can dictate that advantage. Most of the times in the Star Wars game, because I'm kind of a hypocrite in this case, is that the players and the game master usually come to some kind of agreement on all that stuff. Like, okay, because most of the times it's a, well, I don't know what a disadvantage is or a setback or an advantage. I'm not sure what, what I, you know. Okay, let's talk about it. Or some have some ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just yep, a matter yep. So I don't think it's it's that necessarily. I honestly, when I come down to it, and I just think D and D, maybe it's just the way Sean's always run it, and he's never read the rules, and I never, in a million years, would say that that I would think that D and D is if you don't make the check, that it still can be a success with a setback. I think there are times and maybe these are the examples that I've seen but maybe not put two and two together and made the connection because I would say that there is there's always the narrative piece of role playing games mm -hmm. so I know most of the times when I think about I think there's a couple things at play here when we talk about checks there's Somebody could say, well, make a check or make a test or whatever, and depending on the game and how the terminology is, where if it's D&D 5th edition, a, sk a skill check, right? There's a skill check. But it also has to do with combat. You're trying to, you know, hit a target number on an armor class, and you roll and you fail. And those rolls just happen to be D20 based. And there's modifiers that go into that. So I think it's a safe safe to say that many dungeon masters i would say probably narrate the skill pieces probably pretty well i, I think that's fairly even if they do pass well a decent kind of hey you, you can't do it you you get halfway up to slide down you don't take any damage but you burn a hole in your leather gloves right because you slid down the rope or something okay right some will put well, think, in some flavor yeah. text well i think randy's question to you though is like do you prefer your games not to have the or. It's, do you prefer games to rules as written, say, setback? The the setback component, do you like that to be an all-the-time thing? Well, here, here, uh, hmm. 
Or do you have a preference? I don't. Like, I don't. Speak- and I think it's going to be dependent on the game because I can I can run OSC and not have a problem with any. I don't have a problem with any of it. I'm surprised that the D and D wording is all, because I was already always under the impression that it was just black and white, pass fail. That's it. You either hit the target number, or you don't, and if you do, you succeed in what you're trying to accomplish, and if you don't hit the target number or above, you don't and you fail. By the book, by rules as written, as Randy's pointed out, it's almost like you don't fail, period. You, you only have, have to. It's benefit. either or. It's either or. You, right. you could do one or the other. You could fail or you could have you could have the setback component with some. Yeah. But it says success with. Setback. Of, yeah. Yeah. And so. As an or. Yes. And part of that component, I think, is probably <laughs> great. Fine. You know, no problem. But it also goes back to my thinking that with fifth edition, you're you're going to play heroes. So if you want a heroic adventuring fantasy game, then you play fifth edition, period, end of discussion. Like, that's fine. Well, then we get to argue in a different episode about what it means to be heroic, because I disagree. <laughs> that that may be episode. fair. That may be a fair argument. Like, what do you determine as heroic? Yeah. I would say, I would. so I got a question for you on just that, because we're going to go off on a rail bit here, Brett, because since you broached a subject, would you say that there is a difference between how AD&D and what the adventure, the, the people playing player characters mm-hmm. and 5th edition and how they are uh, brought forward and portrayed in each game. Do you think there's a difference or no? If I say too much, then you'll go, oh, yeah, there's, you know, then I'll, I'll lead you too much. No, so I, I mean, I can do the, I can pull a Sean and say it depends, right? So if I'm playing Avalon and it's 5e, I fucking murder you, whether you were first edition, you can still get fucking murdered in the Talk game. Talk straight, I don't straight care. Default. default. But if you stay, if you go by the rules and you read it as is, I would say then fifth edition, it's much harder to kill a player character. It is um, the player characters have more built in bonuses and benefits and they have more. Why? almost superhero type of things because that's what people want and and at least that's what the developers of the game decided that hey this is really cool people want these powers and skills so they can go do what people often deem are heroic deeds right now on the other hand the one of the reasons a lot of people that i just talked to and my friends and i've been discussing this recently um around some of the love of the older the older game stuff is like well i find it more heroic um <clears throat> against all odds my, you know, my four hit point magic user made it to fifth level. Right? That's pretty cool. They play we played smart. We had a couple of good adventures. It was kind of touch and go there, but it was a little more skinny or teeth type of an approach. But there's there's different types of heroic stories to tell. Right? And certain games will enable or allow other types of heroic stories. So I've often, I mean, I've argued with some folks convincingly and other folks not that I, I think Superman is a terrible superhero because he's they have to constantly find ways to nerf him in order to provide a challenge to him. Because, I mean, people say Batman's the Mary Sue. I'm like, mm, no, Superman's even worse because he's like, you have to go out of your way to like find a way to inject him with kryptonite. You have to find some crazy ass format to do something because he's unstoppable. Right. You know, Anyhow, I think one of the interesting pieces here, and so uh, old school. Thank you much for the for the voicemail. I want to I want to read this next one from the warden because I think this is uh, this is 
some of his takes in here I think are pretty cool, and I think it helps in uh, the rules component where we're talking about what we read and what we're comprehending. So he sounded off on this one as well. He said, first off, I think this episode is my favorite of all time, or at least most recent episodes at least. The or aspect of the setback and how D&D community may or may not be playing it reveals one key component. None of us are reading the same game. Sure, it's the same words presented in the same order, but we're not processing them the same way. The result, <coughs> excuse me, is a wider interpretation of the game under an umbrella of core mechanics. Universally, we all know how to determine success or failure, but for some reason, we don't all agree on with what to do with it. It's incredibly common. Take two people and give them the same instructions to build a table. Those two will not have the same problems, nor will they approach them in even the same order. And <laughs> watch my wife and I do it. <laughs> I did that not too long ago. Anyway, he continues, hence with uh, why key variables commonly associated with personal interpretation or lack of experience need to be clearly defined. If you need to insert the dowels before you use nails, you better say so. My dad taught me three things. Always do a good job. Don't talk back to your mother and know you can't borrow the car. Nothing about nothing about dowels first. I had to learn that one the hard way. <laughs> Add on the madness that is English grammar and you've got a drinking problem on your hands. Setbacks also feel like it's written with system mastery in mind because there's no mechanical definition of a setback or any similar term or a complication or hindrance. The closest thing we have are conditions. That doesn't mean all setbacks are conditions, nor shall conditions be used to setbacks. Because I'll be damned if I choose to become petrified just because I roll too below the DC. <laughs> Excuse me. It's very interpretive. And you know what? So is Power of the Apocalypse. I think I became about as annoyed hearing personal interpretations of what makes a hard move versus a soft move in PBTA as they did with individual breakdowns of why the Ranger doesn't work again. Does it make for a good rule set? Depends on whether you want RPGs to be like art, interpretations of a rule set for an emotional response, or sports, concrete rulings on the field to create fair play in every game. As far as how well success with setbacks can be explained, I say it's there but weak. It requires a GM to uh, use it wisely to create a fun experience, but can be easily abused because of how vague it can be. If the goal is to create the style of play as a key component rather than as a mod to suit your personal approach, the reader needs to learn it clearly when introduced in the rules with definitions and examples to back it up. What can a setback do? Should it do one of X things? Can I look it up in the index or glossary? <coughs> Excuse me. As we're spending a lot of time working on board games, we begin to see something we seem to be lacking in RPGs, automation. Board games have clear mechanics that apply in a particular order throughout. No subsystems. Roll this die, draw a card, flip a token, ask a question, repeat. RPGs are more prone to interpretations, and that can lead to drastic differences in play. So when that happens with the world's most popular game and prop up the entire medium of RPGs on its pedestal, are we really putting our best foot forward to new fans of the hobby? Or are these new players trying to tell the hobby something? Are we seeing a shift in, to a pass-fail mode of play over narrative options because it can be explained in one sentence? The hobby is evolving. How these games are devoured is changing, too. Perhaps this is time to ask our hobby what we want from it. I personally want to start by asking if we can automate our games better to help overcome the steep learning curve without requiring system mastery to allow a more narrative influence. No wonder a good game requires a good GM. <laughs> now, I, I think... <clears throat> Todd, the warden had that. That's really insightful as well. And I think um, the first part of that that really hit me was, you know, we we you can read a thing and take it one of two ways. You can read a thing and miss a, and miss pieces of it, right? I think we've all done that, or at least I know I have, where I've read through something. Like, oh yeah, it clearly says 
X, Y, and Z. And Sean will be like, well, what about A, B, and C? Fuck, that's in there? Did I just gloss over that? And you look at it, well, son of a bitch. I glossed over that for whatever reason. I think Randy mentioned this, and, and Sean and I talked about it, too, is there's, for folks like Sean and I have been playing that particular game, well, at least, excuse me, that particular type of game, a Dungeons & Dragons game, I have played five to six different editions of that game, or versions and variations, just within the TSR Watsi umbrellas, right? <coughs> excuse me, and if I count Pathfinder, yet another one. There's enough differences and components between it is very easy to say, oh, I know how this works. And then when I read the new rules, I gloss over a component. It happened quite a bit in 5e, honestly, when we first started playing with my my home group, where someone said, well, this is how this works. So I'm like, no, it isn't. It took me a long time to finally convince the, my group that a fireball is does not have the diameter range that everybody thought it was. We're like, oh, it's 30 feet. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Look it up. Oh, shit, it's not. Oh, Christ, what else have we been doing wrong? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, guys, quite a bit. Look at this stuff. And uh, I, I started doing that more and more based on guys like Randy and other folks saying, actually, the book says, because we're playing all these other games, you know, it's easy to get the cognitive overload, as old school says, to impact what you th- what you remember, what you're trying to do. You're trying to make fast, quick decisions at the table. And I like what um, the word is talking about here when we talk about automation, making things in, in repeatable this, 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 this. You know, if you're playing a card game or a board game. You draw, you play, or you discard. It's this, 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 or this. You know, a very set number of steps. I can see that being very helpful. It, um, I, I think there's room within that automated approach, that little assembly line piece the warden talks about. I think there's room in there for the wild and crazy variations to still happen that happen in a role-playing table. But I think, um, I think one of the things that I, I pull out of this one is the Really good rules, to me, are really, really easy to follow. And I shouldn't have to sort through. So, how do I say this? When I read rules, I don't care if they're written in a story format or a formal bullet point, one, two, three, four, insert tab A into slot B. I don't, I, I actually would prefer... Just wham, 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 bullet point rules. Then give me a colorful explanation of how it could be implemented in play. But that doesn't make for very fun reading. And to make rules fun to read, we add a lot of other color language around it. Which, adding the color language can make things a little more complicated. As people sift and sort and take inferences and so on and mash it together. But anyway, thank you, Warden. I thought that was great. Sean, I, I talked a lot there. What do you think about that one? Yeah, I think Todd always brings... Brings it on home, and it's it's. I like. I'm I'm glad Todd is part of the community because he's got such a unique perspective. Like he's when when I think of us doing this podcast, we lean on D and D a lot, especially in the like first 250 episodes. Easily, like a lot. It's of, hard not to. It's hard not to, man. Yeah. It's it's the thing that is the universal solvent. On many times. Right? Yeah, it's the Kleenex of RPGs at times. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. You know, and it's good to have other folks like Todd because he's developed other games on his own or with um, Third Eye Games or what have you. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's very easy for somebody to come out of 
whatever, insert popular independently published role-playing game here and go crazy Forgeify, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And, 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 and spout Forge lore uh, and doing it in a way that's not overly constructive. So oh, it's my is, way of saying, good. thanks, Todd. Well, this is good stuff. This is not, this is coming from a, a, a position of trying to be helpful. Right. Which is nice. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting here is, I mean, we've got a guy like Randy who's got system mastery. And he probably would say, I don't think I've mastered it. I think if I pressed him on it, he might say, I'm not a master. But Randy plays a lot of 5e. And yeah. um, and as such, and you, and you focus on a game like that, you're really fucking good at it. You're really, really good. You know? And when you're when you've had to hit that level of mastery, there are some things, you know, it sounds like he's developed a very fine sense of I will use the pass fail, pass fail, aha, now with setback, now with setback, pass fail, setback, setback, pass fail, pass fail, pass fail. And there's a there's a feeling and a sense you get, and this comes to practice and um, really mastering it. And um, when you have an option like that, which one do you deploy when? Which one slows down the story, or which one drives a game to a halt, or which one is just illogical, or or whatever the reasoning is. So, and um, I think the warden gives us good good reasoning behind uh, kind of the the reason they have good explanations and how we can look through stuff and, and miss pieces and parts. So that's good. That's good bookends there. I like that. Yes. All right, sir. Over to you. All right. Grieger from Discord writes in or commented on the on the Discord with regards to episode three seventy two. It is really uh, it is really understandable that you are winding it down a bit. It mentions us going to every two weeks. Hmm. Must take a lot of time making these episodes every week. They're so content packed, and also even if you go to a two week cycle now, it's not like you can't go back to a weekly one if you want. So it seems like a good decision. I also really like that you are not afraid to dig so much into a brought up topic and set aside the, the planned one. A lot of interesting discussion came up from it and uh, that has really good value. Looking forward to the next episode when the topic I was looking forward to last week will be handled. The side quest was worth it. So thanks, Grieger. Yeah, I always oh. wonder about taking those side, like. Whoosh. We've done it a few times. We've had some listener feedback pieces of it and sometimes it, Sean and I have leaned on the folks in our community for seven years, right? Pretty much since we started getting feedback. People have given us nice feedback. They've been critical of things. They've said, hey, I called BS on this, Brett or Sean. I don't know if I'm on, I'm with you here. Or they've agreed and given additional advice as we just went through. And I think that's great stuff. And I, and I, I think if we stopped having that be a part of it and we decided like, no, we're going to ignore that and just – force ourselves to the topic i think we'd be doing a disservice to the community and the people who put all that thought and time into putting together that type of information so anyway glad you appreciate it Krieger. thank you man yeah, thanks Krieger. all right what do we got here ray otis wraps up our random encounter here with comments on multiple npcs at the same time which actually we're going to talk about to, which we're going to talk somewhere about today not not exactly the same but it's kind of similar uh i may have missed it on the show but one thing i didn't think you talked about is how running too many npcs in a scene can feel like the gm playing with themselves Oh, pause for laughter. Um, <clears throat> hold on a second. <laughs> you got some. Um, you got some high school giggles there. You got it. There we go. All right, thank you. 
As a player, I've seen this happen. The GM gets all caught up in his NPCs. Pretty soon they are talking to each other, and the player characters become an audience rather than participants in the dialogue. My gut reaction to this is that my character is no longer the center of the fiction, and I'm just along for the ride, like a tourist in an open-top tour bus of the plot. Yes, absolutely right. And if I don't think we mentioned that, but you're dead right. I think there is a there's a component there where you need to check back in. If you've got 15 NPCs, they all have voices. Uh, they're all saying different things or shouting or doing whatever the case may be. That is one of the reasons why, in my examples, and I probably wasn't very clear on it because you missed it. One of the reasons I like to go by this group of people say, or the guards are complaining, or you know, the ladies are waiting to the queen, or the men in arms, the captain seems to say, and then passing it back to the PCs is, is like, how do you how do you react to this comment? What do you say? What do you say over here? And asking them what they care about. If the characters are like, huh, did anybody else hear that? Well, yes, the queen did hear that. What happened? She looked like she's chewing on raw persimmon. Her face is like all twisted up. And she looks pissed off. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I thought she was uh, I thought she and the Duke were closer than that. Oh, interesting. Um, <clears throat> so utilizing the player character to help you drive the conversation I think is definitely key because, yeah, if you get caught up in it, then you're just having this wonderful conversation in your head that you're envisioning happening. And the players are like, so do I get a turn? <laughs> that's that's not good. That is definitely not good. And you need to watch out for that. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that out. Right. Thanks, man. Anything else, Sean? No. And my cat screwing with stuff over here. Great. No, if you start, Thanks, if, you start echoing, if, if you start echoing because the cat will just kick, will kick. Him. I know, kick him. No, thanks, Ray. That's really good. And that I, I don't want to cut that short. I do want to stress that. Do not fall into that trap. If you ever think you do, quite honestly, I think an easy fix is like, okay, you heard that. You turn to the players. You guys heard that. What is it that you say? What are you doing? What do you want to do while they do that? What are you doing if, if they're doing this and so forth? Driving the decisions back to them, who takes the next step? Because otherwise it is just like watching a puppet show. It gets kind of silly. It's just another excuse for me to talk to myself, which I can appreciate, actually. Exactly. Shall we? We shall. Let's get to the main topic. I really got to figure out where these buttons are, man. Here we go. It was there. It's good. What are we talking about this week, Brett? Well, this is the uh, topic you had brought up. Actually, it was the Rival Adventuring Party. I believe one of our um, one of the folks on Discord had brought this up. We were chatting about it off offline here. Um, what's interesting to me is, I guess, my question to you, Sean: Do you use adventuring parties like that? Do you have the NPC adventuring party? You know, the rival group to come in, and I so. In a bit of preparation for this, which is not what I normally do, I was going back, like, parsing through a couple modules and stuff and looking at it, advice and ideas and um, kind of looking up some of the stuff that um, uh, that old school had brought up, too. And I'm like, yeah, there's plenty of references. And you'll see it, like, in random encounters in a lot of old school adventures, rival adventuring party. And then there's, like, charts of rival adventuring parties you could run into, like, hey, you should be a wizard or something. Um I don't tend to use, I strike that. I do not ever remember using a rival adventuring party ever. 
I have a couple adventures modules. Ever? No. I can't recall at all using one. I have a couple of modules, and there's a couple of stun- there's at least one astonishing swordsman sorcerer from Hyperborea beneath the comet. Um, has some rival NPCs, you know, in the mix. But I don't. Um, I I've not run that adventure, and I honestly do not know if I've ever run a rival NPC group, like a whole rival adventure party after the same thing. Have you ever done that, Sean? I. Uh, Not not as uh, <clears throat> not as much as I'd like to, or uh, not in the party's face, probably as much as okay. I'd like to. Probably m- more on the not so much side of things. But I think it's a I think it's great. Like I should do more, and I don't. I think it usually has to do with a patron, right? Like you've got somebody that's hiring you. Um, so I I have multiple like npc bad guys right like the or a group of or a group of things like in my old vampire days like they would piss off a clan like the traders hated them or there was a subsect of bra or malkavians or something that were fucking around and it wasn't i didn't really see it as a um a rival adventuring party because they weren't after the same goal you know and i think the thing that stops me which is goofy because I, I ad lib or I, you know, I'm able to do that on so many other things is that I think rival adventure part. I'm like, Oh, I have to flesh this out. I suddenly, my brain for whatever reason goes, Oh fuck. Um, all right. So if there's a magic user and a, this and a, this and a, this and a cleric and all right, so I got to write down all their spells, all their items, all their, this, because what's going to happen is the characters will face defeat kill or whatever and then i gotta make sure i got a complete list of magic items for these guys and then if there's like a random item like how come it how come they weren't using that or but i don't i have no idea why i suddenly feel this crazy pressure to make this rival adventuring party as coherent as possible <laughs> i don't know why because if it was like a random warrior in the in the desert like if they came across, you know, some random warriors while they're wandering in the desert and um, the warriors accosted them, wanted to steal their water. They had a fight. I roll it up top of my head, fucking run with it and go. No big deal. But for some reason, when it comes down to rival characters, I make I, I in my head, I think I have to make player character worthy NPCs for this rival adventuring party. And I don't know why I think that. And I, oh, I shouldn't say that. I think the reason I think that is because in my old D&D upbringing, reading the books, it would say rival adventuring party, and here's a list. And Gygax and other folks would say, hey, here's your list. It has a magic user fighter, a thief, um, a paladin, and um, like a cleric. And then we'd have a little asterisk on there saying, make sure you kit them out appropriately. Make sure that they're you know, that they have all the proper items and it, it have this language in this is Brett's memory anyway. And I would feel like, oh, that's just a bridge too far. I don't have the I don't want to put that kind of effort into it. And when this topic came up, I thought, oh my God, how how fucking stupid am I? Why why am I thinking that way? It doesn't make any sense because I, it doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be this crazy in-depth, detailed adventuring party. And I don't know why I think I I like I believe I know why is because of how I read it there, but for some reason that's stuck in my stupid head. I need to get that out of there. 
Is that what do you think about that, Sean? Is that I mean, when you think rival adventuring party, do you think uber detailed player character level detailed, or do you just think high level stuff? You know. What well, okay, you're gonna beat your cat? <laughs> So we have a cat feeder here, and it has voice on it. So I have it programmed to go off every time we record, and it like goes off, and it's like my recording yelling for the cats. So, anyways, oh, that's lovely. <laughs> Shout out to every wonderful technical uh, man. I gotta change this. So time anyhow, flow. when you when you think about a rival adventuring party, Sean, are you thinking about a fully fleshed out player character level, as in character sheets for everybody with all the gears and kits? Or are you taking a more simplified approach? I would, I would probably take a simplified approach depending on the game. So if I, getting prepared for our Savage Worlds, forget about it. You know, it's easy because it's it's published and I could just download it and have the it has mm -hmm. the pregens in it. It's a, it's a one shot in a can. Yep. So when I look at things that I'm going to throw at the party. It may be in this, these documents. It may not. So, for example, if these guys are driving down the road and they come across, you know, a, a motorcycle gang, uh, whatever, I don't go in and start statting all that stuff up. And but is that a is that a rival adventuring party or is that just? So I would treat encounter. it the same. I, that's true. That's a good point. But I would because when I think, oh, you wouldn't see it any different. I don't think I would see. I don't think I would see it any different because what happens with the rival adventuring party is they become the encounter. They become well, the they bad can. guys. The, the interesting thing with the rival adventuring party is that it's the, when I usually see it like in um, beneath the comment, if I'm remembering the adventure correctly, they are, they're bad guys, right? After the same thing type of deal. Belloc. Um, I could see, yeah. Belloc. Yeah. Belloc. Oh. They call him Belosh. It's Belosh. <laughs> um, anyway, um, deep deep cuts from uh, <laughs> Raiders. Anyhow, the um, in fact, what was I going to say? The uh, Tomb of Annihilation. I could see having a couple different adventuring parties all trying to get to the tomb, right? For some reason or another, a um, couple different adventuring parties trying to get to the Tomb of Horrors. Couple different adventuring parties trying to do this and thing. And the closest I've come is in the Return of the Tomb of Horrors that I'm running now. The group has encountered, and a couple of them are actually playing failed rival adventuring party people that went in before them, <clears throat> failed, their souls were imprisoned in something, they were able to pull them out. And it was basically a place of ready made playable NPCs because characters were dying. It was like a little mechanical thing I used to, to um, give the players a chance to keep keep going and push through the adventure. Um, but what's interesting is that when you, when I think rival adventuring party, I think they're after the same goal, the same stuff, kind of like a, like a heist, like in, um, well, in oceans movie, right? Where there's, there's a rival person trying to steal the same, they're trying to have a heist off. They're trying to steal the same eye of the serpent or they're doing something or other. <clears throat> um, <laughs> and off. A heist off. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's uh, Rick and Morty. Um, anyway, there is a. Um, what do I say? I think there's a there's more ways to do that. I think that makes them almost 
too predictable, too one-dimensional. The, the obvious way to twist it, in my opinion anyway, is they're not rivals insofar as they're bad guys trying to take something from you for evil purposes. They're on, an e on a similar quest. They don't know you're there, or they may think you're the bad guys, right? That type of thing, where you can get in there and find out that, hey, <clears throat> this group of NPCs, um, if we're using a D&D Greyhawk type of gods to again lean on d and I'm, you know, I worship Foltus and you worship this, you know, we're worship, um, shit, I'm losing my, my, uh, my gods, a oh, Cuthbert. Okay. Both is effectively good, different angles or reasons, but you, you, you're both trying to stop the dragon. You're both trying to stop the same bad thing. Let's say whatever the bad thing is, the Lich King or whatever, bad fucking whatever's going up. You can have different reasons or arguments as to why certain approaches could be different. If you're using alignment, this is a great way for people to, you know, your lawful good rival NPC group here is like, nope, says that paladin, you cannot do that, blah, blah, blah. And on your side, you're like, look, we could just poison this person. We could solve the problem and then you get a little bit of conflict and so on. But I think having them be automatically bad guys I think is too cliche in a way because like, oh yeah, no, great, great. Now we got to go fight a whole other adventuring party and they're going to be equal level Lars and blah, blah, blah. And I think if you, if you approach it, that it's a group of, a group of individuals trying to accomplish either the same goal or a goal that happens to be along in the same location, right? You're in Waterdeep or you're in, you know, you know, you're, you're on, you're on space station, city alpha whatever and you both happen to be in the same location a fight breaks out and in the process you and this rival group quote unquote end up on the same side of the law either the good or the bad side because you both use the the fight as a diversion to try to do the thing you need to do and now you're both in jail son of a bitch what were you here for well we were here to try to stop this you know interstellar slaver well we were here trying to stop this person from selling you know, this heart gem or something or that. I don't fucking know. I'm making up shit, dude. But you can have people that are at cross purposes. They both need to be the same place dealing with similar things. So, look, I want to stop. I, I want to stop the slavers. You want to buy a you want to stop this guy from selling this gem. OK, fine. So we've got to go figure out how we're going to one bust out of prison together because there's three of you and four of us. Hey, seven is better than let's do this together. We're out. I'll help you get your thing if you help me get my thing. And then having a little bit of distrust there, or maybe kind of like him, kind of don't. How tenuous is that relationship? Um, I think it'd be fun, right? And that's a type of rival adventuring party where they're fleshed out, thought out personalities and with goals and objectives of their own that you're that your characters have to deal with. Does that make any sense, Sean? It does. I would. It so it depends on that. If I'm running a game and it's got a quick character generator, then I'll mm -hmm. write them up. It's not a big deal. But okay. If it's, a, if it's a royal pain in the ass and they have to be fully statted because I know the player characters are going to engage with them, you know, either in a combat or a, you know, um, you know, skill challenge or opposing checks or something like that, right? I could make it up on the fly, which I'm not opposed to. It's not a big deal, but that's, mm -hmm. That would be the two instances where I would want to stat them out or not. The other thing is that 
with the rival gang or the rival party. I, this is this is one of those things where we're defining it, which I think is like right as soon as we, as you and I, as game masters, say, "Oh, have you guys ever used like rival adventuring parties?" How how would I be the one to know if I am or not? Unless I'm intentionally doing it. If I'm intentionally doing it, then there's a premise behind why, why I'm doing it, right? Shouldn't it be up to the players to dictate whether they're rival adventuring parties, the enemy, or allies, or whatever? Like, I don't. Well, in a published adventure, like Beneath the Comet, I believe, and somebody out there, um, <laughs> DeShane will probably correct me if he's, um, <clears throat> or Corey Wynn will say, dude, you dumbass. Um, they're evil. It said so in the adventure, right? So that's part to your, that only adds fire to your example there, right? Where it says, hey, look, that's part of that plot of that adventure is that this is statted out and built this way because they're evil adventurers trying to accomplish something. <clears throat> okay, got it. Um, But another way to do it, the way you're describing, I actually like a little bit better, is like introduce them. They've got their personalities, their quirks, like any other NPC, but it just happens to be a band of NPCs three, four, five individuals that all have their own goals or whatever, you know, whatever you need to have there. And then let the PCs decide, do they win them over to their side? Do they not realize that the, you know, that the dwarf and the, uh, on the other side is actually an evil doppelganger or whatever you want to do. You could, if you choose to do such a thing, but otherwise, yeah, you could lean into the players. Do you see them as rivals or are they friends? I don't know, but you'll see, um, in some of the older school stuff, you, in your random encounter chart will say rival adventuring party or another group of adventurers. Right. And add, and thinking about that ad hoc always freaked me out. And again, as I said at the top, that's kind of what I probably the main reason why I don't use them is I think, oh, Jesus, I've, that's, that's a lot of work. I don't want to, I don't want to do that unless I plotted it or planned it out in some way. Right. But I like your thought of um, <laughs> don't, don't pre don't preset them necessarily as rivals. If nothing else from a free flowing kind of uh, ad lib type of setup, right. You, you introduce them right. as a part, as an encounter. Yeah. Play see how it's, Yeah. And see how it goes. Let the actions the, speak for what uh, they are and then have the players uh, interpret how their they place will. in the story. We could label it in our little notes, rival adventuring party. But the one thing that is also going to come I'll tell you though, play, I would I would I would scrap the, the term rival then. Tomato, tomato. The thing well, the is, reason is being that, for me because when I when I would read that, that sets a tone in my head. Right. That I have to be rivals. Right. It's going to be a different group of people with a perspective, however I want to term it, like you know, the Red Claws or you know the Notched Axe group or whoever they are, and then. The cool thing about that is if the player's like, oh, we're friends, like, huh, well, son of a bitch, I guess they're friends now. And if, you know what I'm saying? You could weave the story that way or you could change it up or betrayals Does it then mean can happen. that they can't double cross them? <clears throat> exactly. But if they want to befriend, you know, hey, adventuring friends, what are you doing? The only other drawback is to say you're running like a, a pre, uh, published adventure and then you and specifically when it's around a patron, so a patron hires your group to go and do something. Yep. And they hire another group to go do something. Somebody would say, well, what's the most, like, hey, I'm in 
Barovia. We all know how Cursestrad goes. Like, oh, you guys going to take care of that guy? Shit. <laughs> Call me when you're done. I'll be right exactly. here. I'll, I'll be, be right, right here. here in the tavern. I'm not going up there. Uh, and you know, so then it's going to be, well, I don't want any part of that. If they're going to take care of Strato, hey, yeah. aces. So then you got the adventure. Oh, or or it's the, oh, okay. They're, they're after the same thing we are or something pretty close. Cool. Cool. All right. Hey, Sean. Got an idea. Okay, what do you guys want to do? Um, let's tail these guys. And wipe them out when they're wounded. And and when they get the done with everything we would have to do, and then we'll just be Belloc. Yeah, exactly. Right outside sure. the, 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 the Because what, I speak Mojitos. mojitos you know? I, I speak Mojitos, and you don't. Yeah. So, yeah. And mojitos so, don't you know, know you, yes. another thing that you possess that... Uh, I cannot take away. Yes, that, that whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, I think they are fun to think of and put into place. And I think with this discussion, it's just a matter of you've either used them and and great, or you haven't and you are you haven't thought about it and you decide to. These are some of the things that you might only want to you know that you might want to consider in general, before whipping up another rival party and go, oh, I got a great idea. And then... And the other thing, too, is like a rival party doesn't have to be... If you've got five players at the table, it doesn't need to be five to six NPCs. It is a... It can be a recurring NPC, a recurring villain, recurring friend, a recurring frenemy, however you want to do it. It could be two or three people, right? That's a that's a party. It's a group. Um, I would make people, them the same as the party. <clears throat> exact same. Yeah, I would, I would, I would put a spin on each one. Like you do, you do a mirror, mirror episode. Not necessarily mirror, <laughs> mirror, but like. How do you know it, who's on the other side? Well, they'll have goatees. That's how you, you know. In in the Forbidden Lands, we've got Hargamor, Hargamar the dwarf, and he's a little gruff. You know, maybe the other party's got a human who's just the same. Oh, I see. Take the person, right. keep the personalities, but just assign them different. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I like it. Like, you can have a lot. You can have a lot of fun with that stuff. Oh, well, for I sure. guess what, what I'm saying is, you don't have to have it be equal size. It doesn't have to be a retinue of people, like an entire fucking convoy of NPCs to have to deal with here. Right. And if you think about it, if you have a recurring NPC, either a helpful person, a friend. A quasi friend, you're not quite sure, or a recurring bad vil- bad guy person, he, she, they, or they're always in and fucking with your characters and stuff. This is interjecting more than one, right? Instead of it being, you know, Lilith, the vampire queen, fucking with your characters. Now it's, you know, a group of people, two, three, four, five, however many you, you feel comfortable handling, now interacting with the party. And I love the idea, Sean, and I think this is going to make it easier for me to use this going forward, is... The group don't take the term rival out and just think NPCs. What, how do the players react to them? Now, it makes me want to think of, you know, like a flow chart. Like, okay, what happens if they hate them, piss them off? You know, what if then statements, right? If they do this, then fine, fuck it. The NPCs are going to go after the same thing they're after. Or they won't provide help. Or they'll backstab them. Or, 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 right? The All the if-thens that could possibly come out of it. But kind of uh, injected in there see what happens and then 
plug and play from there, just kind of feeding it into the rest of the, the story as it goes. I like that idea. And I think that fits well with my style where I, I uh, ad lib more than you do. And I think that would be helpful. I like that. I huh. mean, the characters, the player characters could think whatever they want. And Correct. the NPCs could think that the player characters, the party, are the rival party, regardless. Yeah, they can think what, they're a bunch of jackoffs, so they can't stand them. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, they could be like, these assholes. Yeah, you know. So it's it's more perspective, yeah. and so I think, I like, uh, yeah, I think they're great. But I mean, sometimes it's hard to define what a rival part adventuring party is because we'll automatically think that they are the evil, the bad guys. Well, they're, 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 if they're not bad, they're there to take away the thing I'm trying to get. Right. They're, they're there after the exact same thing. The or they become allies or... because you're like, hey, why mm-hmm. don't you join us? And they go, okay. Like in Tomb of Annihilation, I had the part of the Red Wizards, I think, go up against the, um, oh, who is it? The Yuan T. Okay. Right. So it's kind of like, hey, you help us, we help you. Enemy and my enemy. Yeah, but you yeah. know that's not going to last the whole adventure. I think the I like the idea of taking the rival component out. Let the players figure it out, and then you, as the game master, listening to, um, listening to the feedback. Are the players aggressive? Are the characters <clears throat> assholes to your NPCs? Excuse me. And then your NPC group is like, "Oh yeah, sure, no, we'll help you." They're gone in the morning. Fuck these guys, you know. Right. Or uh, <clears throat> they, they're thinking, you know, look, you know, Charlie, we were here to help these guys, but uh, they're a bunch of dicks. We're not going to help a bunch of dicks, so screw these guys. We're out of here. Or, you know what? Let's tail them and pick up the mess after they're half dead. We'll just sweep it. We'll sweep this up later. I think leaving it open like that, unless you have a, um, a preset thing that you want to have. Right. Um, <clears throat> but that way, I think that'll help me inject it into my next game or games because having a group label rival sets my brain thinking it. I need to make them act a certain way so that they're rivals. They're adversarial right out of the bat, probably yes. for no reason. Or or yes. the reason is buried, but you lead with I'm leading with the yeah. The I have attitude. a predetermined notion in my head because right. of how I've labeled them. Right. So <clears throat> if I strip that label off, I'm gonna be more disposed more predisposed to saying, let's see what happens. How does this work? Brett, you know, what happens with it? I like it. We're gonna <clears throat> you make, open my eyes, Sean. You open my we're, eyes. Man. We're going to make you a, a good game master uh, one of these days. We're going to make you a good game master. Seven more years, I'll have another epiphany. I'll be all right. It, I'll get it's it. right around the corner. I, I just can feel it. <laughs> Whew. So... This was not an overly d- deep component because Sean and I haven't really dug into this a whole lot. So what I'd like is any listener out there who has used r- adventuring parties, have you used them as rivals, have you used it in the more free form, here's an adventuring group, alternate group, or a different or a pack of NPCs and how your players deal with it. How have you dealt with this in the past? Do you avoid it? Do you like using them? And um, give us your good stories, your bad stories, or any ideas you have. Um, I'd, I'd like to learn from it, nothing else personally, because um, it's a feature of my RPGs that I'm not using. And as Sean and I have talked about here, I think I think I need to. I think it'd be a good uh, good little change-up. If nothing else, my, my home group would be like, oh, wow, this is something Brett hasn't used before. 
And that's always good to surprise a bunch of people we played with for 30 years. Might throw a little trick at them they haven't seen yet. So uh, give us some ideas. I think that'd be great. Anything else, Sean? I don't think so, man. So, Gregor, I hope we didn't disappoint you because it was a pretty (laughs) – we weren't overly, like, crazy deep into it. But neither Sean nor I have dug into this a lot. So I'm – I, I think if nothing else, the main thing that I've I gleaned out of this, thanks to Sean, is I should not be I shouldn't be overthinking it. I was totally overthinking the rival adventuring party. I need to I need to simplify it. Keep I need to it simplify simple. it a little bit. Keep it simple. I like it. Keep it keep it simple, Brad. There we go. <laughs> That's a nice you nice you yeah. listen there, Sean. Thank you. All right, let's let's move in, on the die roll. Let's get in the die roll. There it is. Die roll two to four miscellaneous points of gaming and geekery want to share with you. First one. That is not it. Why is it way over there? That's not gonna do it. Let me You talk about in the heart of Oz by Goblin Senchman? I do. Hold on a second. Uh, there. In the heart of Oz by Goblin's henchman. Yes. So I don't I was not familiar with this term. Have you heard of uh what is it called? Uh hex. Hex crawl, what is it called? Hex flowers. Have you heard of that, Brett? I know it because I follow Goblin's henchman on Twitter and a few other places, and he posted up and went, "Huh, holy shit, interesting." It's uh, I, I looked at it and went, "Huh, interesting." I have not dug into it further, but um, now that you've got this up, I've got to take a look at it further. So, hex flower is a bit like a random table, but with an inbuilt memory. Because the last turn affects the next outcome. Each time you enter a new hex, you procedurally determine what is going on. It's all part of this in the heart of Oz. He kind of defines it on here. So he's going to be, I think, using this in a game that he's running at BSRCon for us. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's when he puts out some fun OSR type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. this is definitely worth checking out. Awesome. Yes. So thanks, Goblins. Go check that out. Next thing on the list is 33 greatest heist movies. And whenever you hear greatest, best, blah, 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 you know. It's going to be missing your favorite. <laughs> Yeah. Or we'll have your favorite, but missing that one or it'll come up with something. The coolest thing about lists like this, we've talked about this before, even like, hey, the top podcasts I like or the ones that win this award or whatever. It's just if you look at the list, sometimes you find that gem you didn't think of. But, oh, shit, I've been meaning to check that out. It pops back to the top. So the best reason to look at that type of thing. For inspiration purposes, obviously. Correct. Correct. The last one, which will probably be expired by the time that people listen to this, is the Pathfinder book bundle, uh, Humble Bundle, which I I am partially tempted to get just to, I don't know, read it sometime with all the rest of my I had a um, library. I had hard copies of Pathfinder 2E. I started looking through it and went, huh, this is interesting. I'm not going to use this. Yeah. So I sold it. I sold it. But, I mean, it's a bundle and a half. Yeah, I saw it once you put the link out there. I'm like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, so this ends in like four days. Okay. So that's that. Look at all that stuff, man. It's crazy. Uh, the next one brought to us by Nola Burt is the Five Torches Deep and Vagabonds bundle of holding. 
So if you don't know about Five Torches Deep, which Nola Bird is running at BSRCon, it's a kind of rules light version of 5th edition. So if you're interested in exploring that or have heard of it and you want to get in maybe at a you know lower cost, it still help out a charity because some of the proceeds goes to the charity. Check this out. I'm not familiar with Vagabonds. I'm not either, but I know Five Torches Deep has been on my list of things to look into this year. So this might be the opportunity for me to snag it. So Yeah. And that's going to be ending. When does that end? I can't remember. In, uh, I'm looking at it right now. 21 days. So we've got a while. Oh, it's at the top. 21 days. Yep. Uh, check that out. Next one. What would the smart party do? Baz and Gaz, guys overseas and their podcast, visit us on our Discord and interact with us on Twitter. They might even have listened to our show once or twice. So go and check these guys out. They did a, their last episode was the review of 2021. I think they look back on the year, but why is that not scrolling? Oh, I guess I can't scroll. Awesome. So check out those guys. And then the last one is another RPG podcast, Friends of the Show. Um, you could go and check out Scott, and Scott Keith. And Keith. Yeah. Uh, the- so Titterpigs <laughs> is T-T-R-P-G, right? That's yeah, T-T-R-P-G. The, that's the play on it. So. podcast. <laughs> that's cute. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Amdoc is... You know, rolling bo- rolling boxcars. I've we've I've followed him when he was uh, all the way back on Google Plus. So go. These guys are just starting out. They're like on episode four. Yeah. Um, so give them a listen and see see what they have to say. Very cool. Uh, and that is all that we had for this week. What are we talking about next week, Brett? Let's see here. That is that one do 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 do. I and think I we're going to talk. Don't know what topic is. Is it? <laughs> no, we're not recording next week. No, it's not next week. It should be in two weeks. Which so we've got three different options, Sean. I've got rules as a map. I want to believe in rough draft. So um, we'll uh, we'll pick one of those three. We'll pick okay. One. Don't worry. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Shall we? We shall. Let's wrap this sucker up. So if you, thank you for everybody that showed up for the live recording of this. If you found even a, a little bit of value, give us a like, please. I mean, it's 2022. Just if you haven't been given likes, just give likes to everything. Make 22, 2022 the, the year. You like everything. Of the like. Be positive. 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 Thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, you can uh, find this at your podcatcher of choice. Once you do, do a search and then hit subscribe or tell a friend about us. Uh, Otherwise, thank you so much for supporting us and happy 2022 to everybody. Uh, I'm Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night and good game and all. ABSers, before I go into rolling the credits for the show, be sure to stay tuned after the meow. We've got a little bit of a treat for you. This episode of Gaming NBS produced with help from the following BSers. 
Joe Swick, Old School DM, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Chris Steele, Remy Bilodeau, Jason Hobbs, Mark DeSacco, Marco Froelich, Pure Mongrel, Brett Pazinski, Brandon Barnes, Eileen Barnes, Dan LaValley, C.W. Mellencamp, Victor Wyatt, Craig Huber, Roger Braslett, Stefan Dragonspawn, Jared Rasher, Ray Otis, Jim Fitzpatrick, Old Scoozer Roleplaying, Curtis Takahashi, Larry Hout, Ron Bishop, Mark Richmond, Chad Gleyman, Sky, Craig, Howard Bishop, Josh Wallace, Corey Welch, Angus, Eric Salzwedel, George Sedgwick, Robert Nemeth, Brian Kurtz, Laramie Wall, Eric Avia, Andy Olson, Jeff Seifer, John Keyword, Corey Gonzalez, Maurice, Niall Diamond, Aaron Relia, Jeff Gold, Aaron Coleman, Brian Rumble, Rich Wishon, David F. Baylog, Harrigan, Melissa Bashinsky, H.N., Cole Cago, Eric Tavola, Hoos Carl, Ghost GM, Mike Hess Jr., Rory Weston, Jim Ingram, Daniel Garrett, Eric Frankhouse Presents, Phil McClory, Adam Grotejohn, Jay Plata, Ed Nyes, The Duke in Purple, Isaiah Aries Christian, Larry Hollis, AWOL Trooper, Craig Shipman, Todd Sharp, Orcus Dorcas, Chris Shore, Michael O'Holland, Wayne Peacock, Mike Coleman, Miniature Master, Kevin Keneally, Zagrave, Vornak, Farty McButterpants, Andrew Lear, Craig Chunglo, Eric Lunsford, Ty Prunty, Feeling Good Lewis, Ziga Paradzik, Nick Westbrook, John Mahoney, Crystal Eggstead, Zalea, and Hypnocode. ABSers, thanks so much for sticking with us throughout the time. I hope you all have a great, happy 2022. And don't forget, BSRCon, 28th to the 30th. Head over to GamingNBS.com forward slash B-S-E-R-C-O-N. Register for a badge and then sign up for games opening January 10th at noon Central Time U.S. Hope to see you there. This has been a Litterbox Studio production. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Save or Die, a song by Carl Davis of Abandon at My Place. Check out Carl's link in the show notes. Exploring the dungeon deep Found a treasure I want to keep Blue potion I think I'll try Say or die It's an necromancer's blight Confront what our heroes might His fingers held on high Say or die Have one chance It's a deadly dance No matter the level I know I'm in trouble One more bad roll Then it's time to go a glint in the DM's eye. It's time to save a die. Save a die. Save a die. Cleric on unholy ground. Undead rising all around. No answer from the gods on high. Save or die. Robin hair I should not see. Her gaze pierces through me. I'm feeling my rocky high. Save or die. Have one chance. It's a deadly dance. No matter the lamo, I know I'm in trouble. One more bad Then it's time to go. There's a glint in the DM's eye. It's time to save a die. Save a die. Save a die. Is it a death ray or poison? Maybe a wand or just turn you to stone. 
were about to trade it breath. the way it will still ruin your character's day Time to save or die. 